Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. On today's podcast, former Newfoundland Premier Brian Peckford on he and his wife, along with 6 million Canadians, having no family doctor, and how politicians at all levels responded or failed to when Mr. Peckford wrote to them. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, environmentalist, author, challenges the alarmist UN climate messaging. Peter Downing, founder of Wexit, on a rally he's organizing to prevail on Alberta Premier Kenny for separation from Canada referendum legislation and a reply from former Alberta Finance Minister Ted Morton. And anti-Semitism is increasing in Canada. Michael Schlesinger from B'nai B'rith on the National Audit of Anti-Semitic Acts. Um, our good friend and contributor to this program on a regular basis, and boy, do we appreciate his contributions. He's a, he's, he's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to uh, politics and the history of this country and the uh, the things that have preceded 2019, almost 2020, that matter so much politically, constitutionally. Brian Peckford is the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, and he joins us from uh, British Columbia, where he calls home now. And uh, Premier, thank you very much for the time, and let's get at what I, uh, I, you and I have talked about this, about your situation in the past on the air, but there was an expansion of the issue in the Vancouver Sun. They ran a story on you this week, and it has to do with you and your wife, Carol. You don't have family doctors, and uh, you've been pursuing this issue, and you've pursued it most recently with politicians at the local, provincial, and national level. So I want, I want to hear from you what, what you've heard back, but can you just, for the listeners who may not have heard what it is you're facing, and six million Canadians don't have a family doctor, what are you dealing with? Well, I live here in, uh, on Vancouver Island, on the east side of Vancouver Island, in a, a small city called Parksville, which is part of a small region called Oceanside, which includes another town called Qualicum Beach and, and some other rural areas. <laughs> and just recently we were we were informed that our family doctor was closing down the practice. Uh, this puts 2,000 people in the region uh, out of a family doctor. They suddenly, as of November 30th, don't have a family doctor. Uh, there was a proposal made by the doctor that's retiring or is closing the practice that uh, he made arrangements for all the 2,000 if they could drive to 74 kilometers to another regional district in the city of Courtney, uh, and that uh, we could be accommodated there. Of course, uh, this area, the demographics are such that the median uh, age is uh, well over 60, and many people can't uh, either uh, physically uh, go 74 kilometers one way, no public transit, uh, to get a family doctor, 144 kilometers both ways, and uh, therefore uh, the issue is one that... um, when looking up the Canada Health Act, I noticed that uh, there's an issue of accessibility, that the federal government transfers funds to the provinces based on a number of conditions, one being accessibility. And I'm arguing 
that in this case and many other cases across the country, not just here, uh, where there's four to six million people without family doctor, that the Canada Health Act is being violated here because the accessibility requirements are not being met. When you think about the numbers of Canadians, six million in this country who don't have a family physician, and this is the actual health care chain, which is not that great, is not as great as it was a number of years ago. I'll ask you to speak to that in a moment. But it breaks down the entire health care procedure, breaks down at the very first link in the chain if you don't have a family doctor. In fact, we spoke with Dr. Sandy Buckman several times during the recent federal election campaign, and he's the president of the Canadian Medical Association. And for the CMA, that was issue number one, that six million Canadians don't have a family doctor. So, so you, you, you take this forward to the political world, which you're so familiar with, and you point out that uh, we have a right to, uh, to accessibility to health care. Who did you approach, and what did you hear back? Well, this is the other problem. So we have a problem here, and so I've decided, you know, I should uh, pursue this on behalf of myself and my wife and also the other 2,000 people who are now without a family doctor and see if I could do something about it. Well, <laughs> I started to contact people, and I suddenly find out that I'm, I, it's very difficult to get hold of people. I started at the very local level first with the, with the health board, and I, I suddenly realized that they're just a little link in the chain, and it really comes down to the Canada Health Act and this business of moving money across the country to help health care. And so under the Canada Health Act, we're supposed to be able to have reasonable access to people like a family physician, and this is not happening. So first of all, I contacted the provincial minister, uh, the provincial minister passed it on to one of his bureaucrats, and I get an answer back from one of his bureaucrats, and I wanted an answer from the minister. The minister is accountable to the people, not the bureaucrat. The bureaucrat is responsible uh, to the minister. The minister is supposed to be responsible to me and the rest of Canada. So I suddenly realized that I wasn't going to get anywhere there, and then in any case, it, the buck really stops at the federal government, given the Canada Health Act, which is a piece of law passed by the Parliament of Canada. So I contacted the minister in Ottawa only to get an answer back 24 hours ago or so uh, from nobody. In other words, I get a letter back from the Department of Health, the strategic policy branch. No names uh, attached to that letter. No signatures, nothing. Just this cold uh, bureaucratic letter back telling me all the things that they were doing in Canada. No mention of the fact that the conditions of the Canada Health Act are being violated. I sent copies of this letter to the minister in Ottawa to all the local municipal politicians, 12 of them, seven in Parksville, five in Qualicum. I heard back from two out of 12. <coughs> I sent it to all the BC MPs, the MPs who got elected recently to represent us in Ottawa. Of the 41 who I sent it to, I got answers back from Oh so, uh, I, I, you know, the ordinary Canadian who tries to pursue something through the political and bureaucratic system, I can see now why many people have stopped doing that. Because as a former premier, and knowing the system like I do, uh, I can see now why the, 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 the system is broken. Not only the health system is broken, trying to get anything done and contacting those who you are paying to represent you is impossible. It really is. Uh, it's remarkable in, uh, in <clears throat> excuse me, 
in in the in in the manner that it's objectionable, you have uh, you contacted twelve local elected municipal politicians, uh, five in your area, seven in Parksville, so seven in Parksville, so five and seven, and then forty one, uh, forty two MPs, and uh, so you contacted uh, over sixty yep. uh, elected officials at the We're local less than 10. yeah at the local level at the regional level, at the provincial level, and the federal level, and you heard back from less than 10, and when it came to the federal government responding to you, you got an email that was from nobody that didn't address your concern, and when it come, comes to the provincial uh, health minister, you received a reply from one of his assistants. Right. Exactly. And in all cases, nobody is addressing... By the way, all the answers I got back from MPs were just an automatic reply. Thank you for your letter. Uh, we, we will get back to you. Of course, I haven't heard back from anybody. Nobody has addressed the substance of what I'm arguing. And what I'm arguing or contending is, is that we have a piece of law in Canada which says that the government of Canada will transfer $40 billion, over $40 billion a year to the provinces to help them with health care on condition that they follow five conditions of the Act. One of those conditions is, is accessibility. And I'm saying that that provision is being broken, and therefore the transfer of funds to these provinces should be halted until the government of Canada and the provinces arrange to ensure that the conditions of the act are being followed before all these billions of dollars is distributed. Premier, let me get you to hold on. We'll come back with the former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Brian Peckford, and talk more about what he's done, what he's tried to impress on elected officials and try to get them to reply to the fact that there's no family doctor for him or for his wife or for so many others in his area. And then nationally, we know it's at six million. Six million Canadians have no family physician. We're talking with Brian Peckford, the former premier of Newfoundland in Labrador, about his situation. He and his wife don't have a family physician. Um, and what he's done is contact politicians at all levels, including the federal minister of health and his provincial minister of health from the provincial minister. Well, they got a response from somebody who works for the minister, didn't really answer his questions. And from the new federal minister of health, sort of a vacuous response that came from nobody addressed essentially to nobody, even though it was in Premier Peckford's inbox. What, uh, what is the, and you wrote about this, what has the Commonwealth Fund found out? Or what have they determined about healthcare delivery generally, as far as Canada is concerned. Yeah, well, this is really interesting because I've quoted this. Uh, and by the way, this Commonwealth Fund, which is an organization of the United States, has actually been quoted by Canadians and by the Institute of Health Information. It's a very reputable organization, and it has begun to study health systems around the world, especially health systems comparable to those of the United States and Canada, the Western industrialized world. And they're even beginning to expand it larger now. Well, in, in recent studies that they've done, we, are, are, uh, uh, we have the lowest number of doctors among comparable health care systems. We have that's, 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 that's per that, population. Premier, is that per capita? Yes. Okay. We have 2.5 doctors per 1,000 population. Australia has 3.1. Denmark has 3.7. So... I mean, it is a, 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 a serious problem where 
many Canadians, even though we've got 6 million without a family doctor, a lot of Canadians still think our health system is doing just fine. Well, it is not doing just fine. And not only do we have the lowest number of doctors per 1,000 population, we are the lowest among 13 Western countries of getting same-day, next-day appointments when we're sick. And that includes children and the elderly. Exactly. Exactly. So we're not doing a very good job. And what I am saying now, and my personal circumstance sort of validates all of this, is that, you know, the, the, the thing, the, the, the situation is just not working. And when I start to investigate, I find out we're breaking. It looks like to me, and I'm asking for somebody to tell me I'm wrong, that we are violating our own laws as it relates to this. Mm-hmm. The laws under the Canada Health Act, through which money is distributed across the country for health care, $40 billion a year, is that we're not living up to the conditions of this. And what the federal government should be doing, because it's their legislation, is examining all the provinces and finding out what provinces are really living up uh, to the Canada Health Act. Because if you're not living up to the conditions of the Health Act, the Health Act says the minister in Ottawa should refrain from providing those funds. You know, health care is almost invariably the number one, number two, or the number three issue, usually number one, exactly. when it comes to issues of significance in any federal or provincial election. Health care is number one. Your experience with the system, the fact that you don't have a doctor, and your experience with trying to get answers from the system, from people elected, uh, to work for you, and then appointed to a health care position, like ministers federally and provincially, that shows that either they don't have any solutions or they don't care. Well, I think that latter part is, is the most disturbing in the world because if they won't even answer your, your you know, and, and ministers of the crown are the only ones that are accountable to us. Yep. People who work for them are not accountable to us. And We've got to look to our politicians and for them to affix their signature and be responsible for something. Premier, thank you for the time. And if a premier, former premier of a Canadian province can't get an answer on something as fundamentally important that strikes so many millions of Canadians directly into their homes, can't get an answer from the politicians, elected politicians, on no family physicians being available for six million folks, that really is, that rings the major alarm bell. Premier Packford, thanks very much for the time and thanks for sharing that, uh, that, that with us. And I will continue to fight this issue. I know you will. Thank you, sir. Talk to you again. Thank you. Brian Peckford. For many people, this, uh, I don't know how many people know this, that the federal government has said, the Trudeau government has said, that uh, the Technology Innovation and Emissions Reduction Regulation from the province of Alberta, which is set at $30 per ton, a carbon tax on uh, emitters, uh, industrial emitters, such as the oil sands, uh, they've accepted it. Trudeau's government has accepted it under greenhouse gas pollution pricing, but they've only accepted it for one year. After that, they said they're going to review it to make sure that it meets some requirements. Mr. Kenny is happy with one year, not happy with the idea of them uh, coming back to check again. But he also insists that uh, carbon tax on Albertans is unacceptable, and the province will go forward with its uh, fight at the Supreme Court of Canada uh, against the uh, the federal government claiming it has the right 
to uh, to impose such a tax. Let's talk about uh, about the province of Alberta. Um, I, I read earlier in the week that uh, Peter Downing, the founder of Wexit, uh, is organizing or planning to organize a major rally outside the Alberta legislature on the 11th of January. And from what I understand, Mr. Downing wants the premier to pass Alberta separation referendum uh, legislation. And uh, I'm just wondering whether, you know, uh, Mr. Downing represents a significant percentage, a majority of Albertans. I keep hearing the, the, the number of Albertans who are supportive of the idea of separations around 25%. I don't know how true or untrue that is. And Peter Downing joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Peter, good to talk to you again. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, you're welcome, Roy. Good to be here. So let's talk about the level of support that you have within the province. I know the rallies that you hold are very well attended, and there's a great deal of enthusiasm for what you're saying and putting forward as the future for the province of Alberta. But realistically, what percentage of the province, of the residents of Alberta, do you think support, really support, the fundamental position that the province needs to get out of out of confederation? You know, it's really funny. There's lots of polls, and ever since the uh, poll earlier in the year by... Uh, the Angus Reid Institute that uh, pointed out about 60% of Albertans supported the separatist position, about 50% of uh, folks in Saskatchewan. Uh, all the subsequent polls that have come out since then have kind of driven that number down. So um, the, the one that we're accepting as a benchmark right now, just kind of for um, just for ease at this point, is 30%. 30% of Albertans are ready to sign to say yes on a uh, referendum for separation. But let's put that number in perspective. That's 30% of Albertans. Let, let's look at it. How, what percentage of Albertans actually vote? So the support for separation in terms of voters is actually quite a lot higher. and It's probably around the 50% mark. Um, and, and that's the people who are ready to separate today. To give you an idea, when the referendum was called in, uh, I believe, the 90s, the mid-90s uh, with Quebec, the the support the outright support for separation was around the same level as it is right now in Alberta. Obviously, we know that um, it was just a fraction of a percentage that was uh, separated the the no from the yes. Um, but there's a larger percentage of people right now who are sitting on the fence right now as to seeing whether Jason Kenney can achieve the things that he says that he's going to do. Obviously, his talk right now is a lot more conciliatory than it was kind of the the fight and the gusto during his uh, 2018. So, so let me let me let me ask you what you want to do on the 11th of January. What's the what's the objective of the rally? Is it to get the premier to pass Alberta separation from Canada referendum legislation? It's to show how much support there is for a referendum on separation. Uh, we are going to flood uh, the Alberta legislative grounds and. We're not playing, I mean, Jason Kenney talking about referendums on equalization. I mean, it's nonsense. There's no, there's no legal basis for that. So we're putting the pressure on him right now. Again, he's talked about implementing the firewall protocol that he's calling the fair deal panel right now. Um, we, we're making sure that that's getting implemented. Uh, he hasn't talked about immigration, which he should. Uh, that was part of the original firewall letter. So we're making sure that uh, he has no political wiggle room to back out of implementing the firewall deal. And the reality is, as well, is we want the referendum on separation. That's what we want. That's what we're going to get. And that's why we're going to be flooding the legislative grounds on uh, January 11th. Peter, what do, you, what do you think of the Fair Deal panel? Um, I, I think that, um, you know, it, it's, I, I personally think it's, and many of our supporters do, that it's preposterous to have a, a traveling, you know, 
panel listening tour about implementing our own constitutional rights within section section 92 of the constitution or section 92 section 92 of the constitution act so these are things that should have just been unilaterally done because these but, are but doesn't isn't there some isn't there some value to have a participatory series of meetings and to build one can build on another on the next on the next and at the end of the uh, the tour by the panel you you may have some consensus view of what it is Albertans really want they had about 150 people, the the Edmonton one. Um, to give you a perspective, we had 900 people at our rally uh, in Edmonton. Um, they haven't done one anywhere else. We just had 700 people in Red Deer. We had 1,700 people in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Um, we obviously said they're well attended. So Jason Kenny could come to any of those panels, any of those uh, rallies, and and talk to Albertans and see what they think. Um, he can look on social media. He can see what everybody's saying. He can go by his own polling. So I look at it, and many of us look at it like he's trying to contain the sentiment, um, and I, I don't think he's doing a very good job at it. I think what, what we need and what would show up, if he's talking about doing a full-court press on Ottawa, bringing this, this traveling contingent of cabinet ministers, just unilaterally implement the what, what's within his legislative and constitutional authority to do that. But, that you know, was, you know, you know Peter, I, just because of, because of time, I have to stop you, cut you short on some of the answers. I want to get as many questions in as I can for you. Yeah, go for it. So you, you have the premier uh, of Alberta. He was elected to be premier within the constitutional framework. Uh, he also said that he doesn't support separation. So... He's not going to pass Alberta separation referendum legislation. I don't, I don't see that happening. I don't imagine you do either. He is the duly elected premier of the province. He's challenging Trudeau tomorrow, and he's also challenging along with five other conservative premiers in Canada. So you're not only going to be battling Jason Kenney, but you'll also be battling very high-profiled and respected Albertans who will challenge you, like Stephen Harper, like um, um, Ted Morton, who we're going to be talking to shortly, these are high hurdles for you to overcome. Can can you do it within a what kind of time framework are you looking at, or or is it or is what I'm saying just just so out of date and out of touch that it doesn't even doesn't even register? All, all political solutions and all political propositions have a shelf life. It's like food. It's like you cook something and it's going to spoil after a while. Mm-hmm. So unless. Everybody who you just mentioned, Jason Kenney, Stephen Harper, Ted Morton, get the solutions that Albertans are looking for. And the solutions Albertans are looking for is to remove the conditions by which the federal government can dominate our economy and our politics. Those solutions are going to fail. They're going to spoil. The mood of industry and the mood of the voting public is going to turn. And again, Jason Kenney was elected on. He's going to be the roughest, toughest, meanest uh, premier to fight against Ottawa. That's what he was elected on. So we, if you go on uh, wheretosignab.com, you're going to see all the businesses right now that are partnering with us to collect the 7,868 signatures required to form a provincial political party, Wexit, Alberta. If Jason Kenney and the UCP do not give Albertans what they want, they can enjoy their last three years in office. They're going to lose in 2023. So you see, uh, you're going to not necessarily chart the identical course to the Parti Québécois. But you will chart, you are? We are. I mean, everything that we're doing right now, if you look at the structure, uh, Wexit Canada, we filed our application. Yeah, I'm just, I'm talking about things like, you know, language legislation, uh, unless that's part part of the deal. That was so huge in in Quebec. But your fundamental objective is the same. Yeah, same objective. So uh, you'll have a slate, you, you, you project having a full slate of candidates within three years, and then take on the UCP and the NDP and whoever else. Head on. 
the reality is by that time, um, whether it's, it's you know, you, you even said it yourself, the um, Jason Kenney campaigned on no carbon tax as well. He just slapped a 30 per ton carbon tax on industry. And that, that gets passed down or keeps our industry less competitive. You said it's going to be reviewed in another year. What's going to come next? Justin Trudeau's talks. Again, we take Justin Trudeau at his word. He has said at his word he's going to stand up to Alberta and he is going to phase out our industry. Yeah, he said that. He said that. No question. Uh, Peter, I'm just really interested in what's going on. And, uh, you know, I've been a very vocal supporter of the province of Alberta and the people of Alberta. I want to know what's going on. I want to have a sense of what, uh, you know, get my finger on the pulse. And the best way for me to do that is to talk to you and talk to uh, Ted Morton and talk to Jason Kenney and talk to our callers. And I do appreciate you coming on the show. What's the website uh, again, again, Peter? If you go on, it's where to sign AB, where to sign AB.com. Uh, all one word, where to sign AB.com. You're going to see the businesses that partnered with us. We've got over a thousand signatures collected. So far, uh, we haven't been able to tally the first counts. It's just been a few days, but you can look all across the province right now, and uh, more businesses are coming online, and uh, Albertans are supporting them. The Albertans that are going in to sign the petition, they're buying from those stores. We're all coming together in a time of economic hardship. Peter Downing, thank you for the time. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Good talking to you, Peter Downing. Uh, From Wexit. Let us continue on this issue of uh, Alberta and Alberta's future within or without Canada. And by the way, we just took callers as they came in the last segment. We didn't screen anyone and ask anyone what they were going to say. We didn't ask you whether you wanted Alberta to stay within Confederation or leave. We just took the calls as they came. With us now is the former finance minister of Alberta, Ted Morton. He, uh, along with Stephen Harper and several other prominent Albertans, signed the so-called firewall letter delivered to then-Premier Ralph Klein in 2001. And Premier Kenny, as you know, has announced that fair deal panel, touring the province, hearing from Albertans, whether they approve significant changes in the relationship between the province and the federal government, uh, Canada Pension Plan, collecting taxes, maybe drop the RCMP in favor of a provincial uh, police force, maybe uh, uh, immigration, or I, who knows. Uh, and in a, in, a, in a written piece, Ted Morton supported the uh, Fair Deal initiative. He joins us uh, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Ted, thank you very much for the time. And I just remember after that uh, firewall letter was uh, presented to Premier Klein, I spoke with him on the air shortly afterwards. And I asked him about um, about uh, Alberta separation. And I remember him saying, and he said this more than once to media people, don't push us. And here we are in 2019. How do you assess what's going on in the province, what the emotion is, and then speak to the Fair Deal panel, please. Well, you can tell, uh, Roy, from uh, what Peter Downing said, the amount of support that he's, uh, he's attracted for his, uh, for his uh, Wexit uh, effort, that there's um, a high degree of, historically speaking, a high degree of support. You know, I, I think his figure, 30%, was too high, but I, I think it's closer to 20, maybe, maybe 25 uh, that's double what it was uh, 18 months ago, or triple. Um, but I think what Premier Kenny has decided with this fair deal panel and, and the uh, <clears throat> the 
mandate that he's given them to look at half a dozen policy initiatives that you've discussed already that would change Alberta's relationship with Ottawa, uh, make us more like Quebec in terms of autonomy and self-reliance. I think what uh, Premier Kenny's trying to do is take that energy, uh, negative energy, frustration, anger, fear that is driving Wexit and push it towards some constructive reforms that would give Alberta, as he calls it, a fair, fair deal, a more fair deal uh, <clears throat> inside of Canada. If he succeeds, I don't think uh, I don't think Wexit will go too far at all. If he doesn't succeed, uh, then that opens up another another uh, scenario. How would you measure success in this scenario? Well, he's made it pretty clear. Uh, Trans Trans Mountain has to be completed in a timely manner. And again, he kind of uses Premier Kennedy's kind of used code words. If you look at everything he says, he says must be completed and the rule of law must be enforced. Now, what that means is when the uh, diehard protesters begin to, uh, you know, put spikes in the trees and lay lie down in front of um, uh, caterpillars and so forth, that the police, or if not the police, the army will come in and remove them and arrest them for trespass and and so forth, because uh, they're going to do that. The last uh, the last 40 miles next summer is going to look pretty chaotic. So he certainly expects uh, Prime Minister Trudeau to uh, do what needs to be done to do that complete TMX in a timely manner. He wants changes, very either repeal or significant meaningful changes to C69 the uh, pipeline uh, approval process. Um, those are, I'd say, absolute uh, non-negotiable. And then there's the other four or five internal proposals that will be discussed by the Fair Deal panel over the next two months. And I think actually this discussion will go on for the next two years. And to the extent that Albertans support and the government supports some of them, you'll probably see a referendum on some of these issues uh, as part of the 2021 provincial election. So that's about uh, 20 months away. Do you foresee the time where there could be a referendum, a binding referendum on Alberta separation from Canada? Yes, one of your, your um, Downing had, it was a lot closer to accurate than some of your callers were. Uh, the Supreme Court has already said in the Quebec secession reference in 1996, it says if a province has a referendum on a constitutional issue, including separation, and there's a clear majority on a clear question, then that creates a, uh, a constitutional duty, not, a, not something small, but a constitutional duty on Ottawa and the other provinces to negotiate, and they said to negotiate in good faith. Now, that's not quite a quotation, but it's as close as I can get without having the words in front of me. Of course, the unanswered question is, what if, Ottawa doesn't negotiate in good faith, then what happens? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but the whole paradigm has changed, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the parameters of that of that Supreme Court decision. I was trying to explain it to a to a caller, and I couldn't remember the you explained it far better than I did. Uh, well, but I mean, the, basically, the, the key thing is the Supreme Court did not say if Quebec has a referendum on secession, then uh, clear majority <clears throat> on a clear question, et cetera. It said. If a province right. has a referendum on a constitutional issue, and there's a clear majority on it, that, so they, and again, they had to say that because they can't pretend like somehow in the Constitution there's a special clause for Quebec. Right. 
Right. Um, so now the paradigm has changed. Minority government, Mr. Trudeau, can't ram things through like C-69 and C-48 as he could before. Um, maybe that gives uh, more negotiation. No, but he, could, but he, could, he, he would get, I don't think I'd be speaking out of school if I said he could get support from Sheer and the conservative, you know, the next largest party, and you know, four times more than all the other parties put together, they would support Trudeau on uh, repeal of C-48, the tanker ban off the West. Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's, there's, there's no tanker ban in the St. Lawrence Seaway. I wonder why. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then they would also support uh, Prime Minister Trudeau on repeal or meaningful reforms to Bill C-69. Of course. But I don't think that would jeopardize his his minority government. No, I'm just saying generally he can't do the things that he was able to do before October the 21st, and that would include having the power to ram through legislation like C-69 and C-48 over national objections. Ted, why, where does the carbon tax... Well, I, wait a minute. If he wanted to go further down the path to uh, the green paradise, the no pipelines, no 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 oil no hydrocarbons uh, paradise, I suspect the NDP and and uh, the bloc would support him because the, the conservatives don't have enough votes to... Uh, yeah, I'm not just talking, I'm not talking specifically and only about C-69 and C-48. I'm talking about generally, he doesn't have the kind of political cloud of power that he had with a majority government. That's the same, same for any minority uh, government prime minister. But I want to ask you this in the time we have left. The carbon tax, the actual carbon tax, and the case going before the Supreme Court, how significant will that ultimately turn out to be in this overall equation of the future of Alberta? I'd say it's second tier. Uh, really? If you look at the constitutional uh, language and the decisions around the federal taxing power, it is very, very broad. Uh, the problem with the carbon tax, as Trudeau has implemented, is is that it's selective. It doesn't apply to some provinces, and it applies almost in a punitive manner to other provinces. That makes it unlike any other tax the federal government has ever passed since 1867. So is there a chance that the Supreme Court might strike it down? Well, you read the dissenting judges in the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. There's, there's a pretty good case to be made that it's unconstitutional. Um, how it's resolved uh, by the I don't have much confidence in how the I think Supreme Court will support Trudeau, not because he's right, but just because the Supreme Court is in Ottawa. But in terms of the bigger picture of Kenny being able to direct this energy, anger, fear to a set of constructive proposals, the fair deal, to avoid the separatist option that's waiting in the wings with Peter Downing, I don't think the carbon tax is, I think it's, it's important, but I don't think it's one of the top-tier issues. Okay, one last question for you. Tomorrow, Mr. Kenney and uh, Alberta ministers meet with the prime minister, meet with the federal government. Are you expecting something to really significant come out of that, which will, you know, which will, will the nego- negotiations of the talks lead to something significant? Uh, I think there's some talk. Uh, there's, well, Kenny has done a very good job of recruiting allies. I think it's his as many as nine of the ten other provincial premiers, almost everyone except Quebec, on on pipelines and, and, and C-69. So when you put that together, and Trudeau wanting to work with, having a working relationship with uh, provincial premiers, <clears throat> my understanding is there may be 
there's discussion going on with respect to not to the abolition or repeal of C69, but to meaningful reform. Whether that'll happen next week, I, I'm, I sort of doubt it, but I, I think that's happening as, as we talk. Ted Morton, thank you for the time. Always good talking to you. Thank you, Ted. Okay. All the best. You. Ted Morton, former finance minister in Alberta. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, COP25, the, uh, the climate conference upcoming, and the UN Secretary General is upping the panic ante by claiming all life on Earth could be wiped out by climate change, unless, and you can fill in the blanks, my guest is Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, director of the Copenhagen Consensus Institute think tank. They have uh, seven Nobel laureates participating. Dr. Lomborg, named by Time magazine to the list of the 100 most influential in the world. And uh, Dr. Lomborg presents a different picture to that of the United Nations, although he's not opposed to what he calls an intelligent carbon tax, but strongly refutes the panic scenarios from the United Nations. One of his books is Cool It!, and on Twitter, you'll find him at, at Bjorn Lomborg. Dr. Lomborg, thank you very much for the time. Hey, Roy, it's good to be back. So if I can start with the, with the Secretary General warning that all life on Earth may cease because of climate change if we don't do all that the United Nations agreement says we must do, what do you say? Well, I mean, first of all, it's just silly. It is beyond... Uh, recognition of anything that the UN actually says. You said that I don't uh, necessarily agree with the UN. I actually agree with the UN Climate Panel Report, which is this gold standard that is written by thousands of the world's best climate scientists who tell us it's a problem, but they also show it's by no means the end of the world. And telling people that this could wipe out life on Earth, which is just so far beyond the pale of what anyone would argue is the impact of global warming is simply irresponsible. And it panics children. It panics families. It pan panics people across the around the world. Why are they doing it? What's your sense of that? Well, I think something unfortunate has happened in the last couple of years. Look, global warming is real. And for a while, we were battling people who would say, no, 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 it's just a, you know, it's just a conspiracy. It's made up. Uh, but what's increasingly happened is that in order to sort of press this point, look, it is a real problem. I think more and more have sort of gotten egged on by saying we need to do more and more. You can see it rapidly evolving. You can see it getting ever worse. One of the things that you constantly hear is, for instance, that it's steadily accelerating, that it's getting worse and worse, that extreme weather, for instance, is getting worse. Look, there is a new study out, a uh, period study, that looked at all the different areas of extreme weather. Is death going up? No, death is going down. Is cost in percentage of GDP going up? No, it's going down on all of these areas. Well, it's not to say that there's not a problem, but this way that it's being portrayed as the end of the world is not only unhelpful to actually bring about solutions, but of course it's also encouraging what uh, uh, Mencken uh, once said, you know, most of politics is really about 
uh, dragging out a lot of hobgoblins and then telling you, the population, we're going to protect you from these hobgoblins, if they're real or not. I'm uh, looking at your newsletter, and uh, I, I see uh, one headline of one piece. And, and you and I have talked about this, and you've given us some great answers to this issue. We're throwing money at the wrong climate solutions. And in your newsletter, it says, during a recent visit with the Dallas Morning News editorial board, Bjorn Lomborg urged policymakers to spend money on countering climate change more effectively, rather than spending on feel-good green projects or urging people to make personal sacrifices, such as giving up meat, leaders should approach climate solutions unemotionally and invest in the full ideas or the ideas that will do the most good for the most people. And you listed four initiatives. Can you walk us exactly. through those, please? Yeah. So, so look, uh, any climate economist will tell you you should price carbon because carbon is negative, so you should price it. That's a carbon tax. That is a sensible first solution. What you need to remember is if you do this, and you should probably tax it around 20 U.S. dollars, so that's probably, what, 25, 30 Canadian. Uh, and that would actually mean that you've now taken into account all of the damages that global warming does. That means, of course, you need to cut all subsidies into renewables and all the other incentives that you set up to cl fix climate change, because this is the ultimately right and optimal solution. Now, this is not going to happen in the U.S. It's probably not going to happen in China and India and many other places. But where you can, it's probably a good idea. We should also recognize it's not going to solve most of this problem. The right way to solve this, and it has been the right way to solve pretty much all problems in the world, is through better technology. If we can innovate green energy that's cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone will switch, not just rich, well-meaning Canadians or Danes, but also the rest of the world, of course, especially China and India and the other big players. This is all about innovation. So if you push more money into research and development into green energy, chances are you will quicker find smarter solutions that will power the rest of the 21st century. This is an eminently both cheap and incredibly effective climate policy. Then you should also look at uh, adaptation, and then you should also look a little bit on a backup policy that's called geoengineering, just to make sure. And then finally, there's actually a fifth, and I forgot that. You should make sure that people get rich, because if they get rich, if they get out of poverty, they're much more resilient to actually tackle global warming. We are only focusing a little bit on the first solution, forgetting the others, and then spending lots of resources on subsidizing essentially ineffective solar panels and wind turbines. Uh, you mentioned uh, Denmark just about 30 seconds ago. I read a tweet from you um, just a day or so ago about what Denmark is doing, and uh, which is not going to be particularly effective. Can you remind us what that is? Yes. So Denmark, in, a, in all, yeah, remember, Denmark is a tiny country. Uh, so in all our boastfulness, we've decided to cut carbon emissions in 2030 by 70%. Uh, so that's 30% more than what we'd promised otherwise. Uh, it was what the uh, incoming government actually won on. Uh, everybody's very proud about it. The reality is, if we actually do this, the total cost will be more than 120 billion U.S. dollars more than what we would otherwise have paid for our climate policy. And the net effect by the end of the century will be to decrease global warming by one ten thousandth of a degree centigrade. So we'll spend a lot of money. This is real money for Denmark, and we'll get nothing. You can't measure the impact in 100 years. 
That is the definition of a bad policy. And indeed, if you do the cost-benefit analysis for every dollar we spend, we avoid three cents of climate damage. So they must really love hearing from you then. (laughs) The funny thing is, you know, uh, nobody wants to take this up, of course, because there's no point in arguing, no, 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 it's actually one and a half ten thousandths of a degree, or it's only $115 billion it's going to cost us. You know, you can't walk this away. So in some ways, yes, this annoys the crap out of them, but in another way, and as we started off this conversation, they already got everybody worried uh, and, and, you know, panicked. And so a lot of people are just simply willing to say, well, let's try anything. Uh, just, you know, waste my pension fund and let's see if we can do anything against this. And, of course, that is a surefire way to actually end up in a world that's going to be a lot less good than one you could have left your uh, future generations, your kid and grandkids. So really it's about proper spending, it's proper research, and then spending the money where it's most required to do the most good. And then you will uh, most effectively counter the, as you point out, the uh, the global warming that's taking place, and you make people healthier and wealthier, and everyone's better off at the end. Exactly. And that's, of course, especially true for all the poor people in this world who want so many other things fixed first, like not having their kids die from easily curable infectious disease. Um, the Copenhagen Consensus Center is a think tank that researches and publishes the smartest solutions to the world's biggest problems. Our studies are conducted by more than 300 economists from internationally renowned institutions, including seven Nobel laureates, to advise policymakers and philanthropists on how to achieve best results with their limited resources. And there's a quote here from The Economist. Copenhagen Consensus is an outstanding visionary idea and deserves global coverage. My guest is Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, who founded and is the leader of Copenhagen Consensus. By the way, it's uh, copenhagenconsensus.com is the website. Uh, Dr. Lomborg, there's a section in your newsletter, Humans Can Survive Underwater. So that got my attention. And Thank you. It, yeah, I mean, it's one of these things that you say, no, I have to read this now, not tomorrow. What's the story behind this? So a lot of people actually saw this. Uh, uh, the New York Times did a story on a uh, on a piece of research that actually is, is a good piece of research. So it basically looked at what is the mapping of the, uh, the human world, especially very close to the oceans. And it turns out that we probably underestimated how many people live very close to the ocean. And so what they did was they looked at how many people are, for instance, just below the high tide water line in, say, 2050. And it turns out that that's a lot of people. And so the New York Times, for instance, showed a picture uh, right up front uh, of southern Vietnam, which would be entirely inundated by 2050. And they said 20 million inhabitants will probably be underwater. It'll all but disappear. It was very, very strong emotional sense. The problem was they'd forgotten to look at what does the picture look like today. And, oh, wait. Almost everything in southern Vietnam is underwater today, just like most of much of Holland, just like central London, just like many other places. What it actually shows you, of course, is that humans have already now learned to live underwater and fine and well. Uh, remember the 14th largest airport in the world, uh, Schiphol in Amsterdam Airport, 
is actually on a site of a former naval battle. It's three or four meters below water. And nobody notices when they land there or they change planes. So the whole point here is to say this was a total scare story. It actually shows that humanity is really, really good at tackling this and have already tackled it. I just go back to 1969. Landed two men on the moon. We can do things. We have a history of accomplishment. (laughs) But I think the difference is that was actually really expensive. But what we've done with water, we've done that. You know, the old Sumerians knew how to build dikes, and we are doing that. Holland started doing this in the 1800s with much better technology. Of course, you can do this now. I'm not saying, and that's important, I'm not saying it's going to be costless. We expect right now about 110 million people underwater, uh, which means you actually have to have protection. And, of course, we have for almost all of these 110 million people. But because of sea level rise, because of global warming, we will see about 150 million by 2050. So it's going to be a larger problem that will cost real money. But it's not going to cost very much. And that's the real point. Of course, everyone is going to be protected because we'll be much richer. We'll have even better technology. And already 100 years ago, we knew how to fix this problem. And it won't cost as much as the Paris Accord of 2015 uh, was projecting, right? The whole point is that this is going to be phenomenally cheap. So actually, when you do the studies, if you do this well, it will cost about uh, uh, sorry, less than one, less than half of one tenth of one percent of GDP to actually cover you uh, for most nations. There's a few nations that will have higher costs. Whereas, of course, the Paris Agreement and all the other things that we're talking about easily will cost us uh, two, five, ten, maybe even twenty uh, percent of our GDP. So the reality is, we're promising to spend far more money on ineffective policies than the effective policies that'll actually keep us safe. What are you expecting from COP25? Well, I don't think anyone is expecting anything from COP25. It's sort of a pre-meeting for next year's meeting when possibly nations are going to make more and bigger promises. But the reality is we need to recognize that when nations make promises, they almost always go back on them. So they'll make grand promises, people will applaud them, everybody will feel warm and fuzzy, and then once they start going home and realize, oh, wait, this is actually going to cost real money and a lot of real money, most populations, most governments stop, or if they don't, as, you know, for instance, France figured out, people start protesting them. So the reality is, while there's been lots and lots of nice-sounding uh, uh, movements for policies over the last 20 or 30 years, we've actually done almost nothing to cut carbon emissions. Uh, I don't know if you saw New Zealand just uh, 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 passed their law to become carbon neutral by 2050. I did. And it's almost ironic. They promised that, uh, sorry, 12 years ago, and they promised 12 years ago that they would become carbon neutral in 2020, and they're poised to overshoot that by 131%. They're actually going to be emitting more CO2 in 2020 than what they did back when they promised in 2008. But, of course, now they just go for seconds. Now, we have about a minute left, and uh, I want to give you that minute because we can all contribute to the uh, work that's done by Copenhagen Consensus Center. How do we do that? Oh, thank you very much. The easiest way is simply to go to copenhagenconsensus.com and pre- uh, uh, and push on our uh, – sorry, I don't even know what the, – uh, on, uh, on the donate button. 
Okay. Uh, and you can donate via PayPal or any other thing. We're a nonprofit organization. Of course, we'd love your help. Well, you do a lot of tremendous work at Copenhagen Consensus. Dr. Lomborg, good talking to you again. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, CopenhagenConsensus.com is the think tank. And again, they have seven Nobel laureates. And they come up with workable solutions to the world's biggest problems. And uh, in my view, they're worth some support. The New York Police Department, the NYPD, reports that anti-Semitic hate crimes, I'll just read this one line from the story, anti-Semitic hate crimes in New York City are up 63% this year, 2019, as compared with last year. 63% increase in anti-Semitic hate crimes in New York City year over year, 2019 over 2018. So anti-Semitism is rising in this country. And B'nai B'rith Canada conducted an audit Michael Schlesinger is research analyst for the League of uh, Human Rights, B'nai B'rith Canada, and uh, this year told the Toronto Police Service Board that the Jewish community, quote, and I was, I was, I was watching this on, on uh, YouTube the other day, quote, has been the most targeted for hate in the past four years, end quote. So the Jewish community has been the most targeted for hate in Toronto for the past four years. And then recently there was that terrible incident at York University and York's um, official response this week, which is just awful. Um, Michael Schlesinger joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, League for Human Rights, B'nai B'rith Canada. I just have to be sure. I'm pronouncing your first name correctly, right? I get that. I, I get that uh, asked a lot of me, uh, Roy. It's, it's Michelle Schlesinger, even though it's spelled like Michael. Okay, so I because I got it spelled M I C H A L. That's I, right. I should I should have checked. I'm sorry. I'm as I was oh, saying no, it. No. I thought I mean, Roy, check. Always check the name because the last thing I want to do is get somebody's name wrong because that sets everything off on the wrong course to begin with. Not at all. Thanks uh, <laughs> for having me, uh, Roy, on your program on behalf of Neighbors Canada. Thank you, Michelle, for joining us. So let's talk about first of all. Tell us about the audit you conducted. What were the what was what were the parameters of, of the of the audit? And did you have expectations going in? And then when the conclusions were arrived at. Uh, was it much different from what you might have expected? Well, uh, we've been keeping track of anti-Semitism uh, across Canada, Roy, since 1982. So this is, uh, what, our 37th year of uh, keeping track of anti-Semitic incidents across Canada. Uh, we call it the audit. It's actually the annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents. And uh, it's an authoritative document. Um, it's the only one of its kind across Canada. And um, we, we have been seeing a, uh, an increase over the course of uh, the last three years uh, in anti-Semitism. It's definitely a trend, uh, third year straight of increases uh, in anti-Semitism across Canada. How do you define, uh, loosely, broadly, how is anti-Semitism defined? Because there are direct physical hate attacks, there are the more... I don't know if we can even say indirect, but it appears more indirect, like like graffiti, even though that's personally very hurtful. Uh, how is anti-Semitism defined? Well, we keep track of it in terms of um, uh, categories as harassment, uh, violence, vandalism, online incidents uh, of uh, anti-Semitism. So it doesn't have to meet the threshold of a criminal uh, of a crime 
in order to make its way into our audit. Uh, it can fall into any one of those categories. Generally speaking, uh, we use the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. Um, and we, we are seeing, as I said, an increase in anti-Semitism uh, third year straight. Uh, we have people reporting uh, anti-Semitism to us through our 24-hour uh, uh, hotline mm -hmm. as well. Uh, we also receive statistics, of course, uh, from the police with whom we collaborate. And so we have, uh, of course, open uh, source information as well. And all of that figures into to our audit and uh, is entered in statistically. And we hear from people on a daily basis uh, with respect to anti-Semitic incidents. So all of this, all told, really gives us a very good idea of what's going on across Canada. We really have our pulse. Uh, we really have a finger, so to speak, on the pulse of what's going on across Canada. I was shocked uh, when I looked at the uh, some of the numbers. December of last year, 349, 349 uh, anti-Semitic acts were reported. That's a huge number. Uh, yes, um, really. Um, in fact, uh, it was uh, we, we actually uh, exceeded 2,000 incidents of uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, it was the first time last year where we surpassed 2,000 incidents uh, since we began, I would say, documenting the phenomenon in 1982. So, um, yes, there's, uh, I, I don't know if you're looking at a specific statistic for a particular category, but all told, uh, this was the first time, uh, sadly enough, where we surpassed 2,000 incidents since we began tracking this, as I said, uh, in 1982. So, Michelle, what's driving it? Uh, well, you know, what's driving it is a very good question because what we're seeing is this is is not divorced from the trends that uh, we're seeing really in Europe, in uh, in in North America as a whole. We're not uh, immune from what's going on uh, worldwide. No, and uh, and Europe is uh, is particularly France, from what I've been reading is uh, a major concern for uh, anti-Semitic incidents. Um, what are the most, what are the most, hey, boy, I don't, I don't like to say the most common, but what, what types of incidents are taking place? What do you hear most frequently? Uh, these are all very good questions. Um, we are, we're definitely seeing uh, harassment. Um, we've seen online harassment grown tremendously with the advent of social media platforms, uh, with Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and YouTube, uh, where people really have the benefit, quote-unquote, of anonymity. So we see an increase in that. Uh, we, we see a lot of anti-Semitic harassment in the secondary school systems. Um, we see all kinds of anti-Semitism in all kinds of forms. Uh, but what we're really seeing as well is, is this... this uh, a bubbling up of online and in-person hate into violence of late. Um, and, and that's what you're seeing with the recent riots at York University that you've mentioned mm -hmm. and many other examples as well. What do you, uh, what, what, what is Monet Berth, uh, how do you view what happened at York University where uh, um, the Jewish Students Group had brought in uh, a number of um, former Israeli uh, soldiers and uh, reservists and they're having an event and it turned into a violent 
exchange outside the uh, the room, and uh, shouts of intifada apparently were were issued. And uh, what, what do you make of that in the university's response? Well, um, we're in dialogue with the universities and with other groups right now. Um, and, of course, what we make of it is it, in the sense that we don't want to see it happen again. Um, but what we're seeing in it is um, it's very sad, actually, because um, freedom of expression should not and does not include violence. And what you had here was a pro-Israel group who had booked their room in advance, um, a peaceful group that had brought in, as you explained, uh, reservists, um, uh, pardon me, uh, people who had uh, previously served in, in, in the Israeli army, and it's uh, mandatory to do so in Israel. Um, they brought people uh, to speak, um, just to hear directly from, as I said, Israeli veterans of, of a really tragic conflict. Um, they brought them in, and this other group tried to shut down the event. And they had, it was a mob acting aggressively, uh, to shut down a lawful event, and uh, that would be an interference, obviously, with freedom of assembly and freedom of expression. Uh, so uh, that's uh, instigating uh, essentially a riot, and uh, students should be uh, free to, to hold their events that they had booked uh, previously, free of violence, free of intimidation, free of oppression. Um, and uh, we just want to make sure, as I said before, that it does not happen again. No, I, well, absolutely not. And uh, I was reading something uh, uh, yesterday, and I was looking for it here. Yeah, according to uh, a police-reported uh, hate crime 2017, which was released by StatsCan last year, Jews were the single most targeted group for hate crimes in Canada, and, and that is despite the fact that uh, the Jewish community makes up 1% of the national population. That speaks volumes right there. It really does. It really does. And um, as I said, uh, there's a lot of work that has to be done uh, in that department in terms of combating anti-Semitism. It really speaks to the amount of work that really uh, has to be done on our part and uh, the community's part as well. Do you find that governments, the various levels of government, municipal, provincial, federal, are doing what they should, doing what they can in order to make it very clear that anti-Semitism is not going to be tolerated in this country? Well, we have to continue to work uh, with governments at all levels, and we have to continue to collaborate with the police. And uh, Nabris really has uh, uh, very important ideas in terms of how to deal uh, with these issues which include our eight-point plan to tackle anti-Semitism. We definitely need a national uh, action plan uh, that has to be adopted in, in that regard. And um, we have to have education. Um, Anti-Semitism should be forming part of the uh, curriculum uh, because it's a contemporary phenomenon which mm -hmm. exists and it's growing. And uh, kids need to learn about it. Uh, they need to learn about uh, Holocaust, to learn about the Holocaust uh, as a uh, consequence, or what can be and has been a consequence of anti-Semitism in the past. Um, Nabris understands and works uh, with government and police that it's important that the uh, laws be enforced. Um, and for that matter, uh, Roy, the Attorney General needs to make it clear what the criteria are for prosecuting hate crimes. Uh, that is, when you can and cannot charge someone uh, for hate crimes. 
uh, because right now, uh, when it comes to certain hate crimes, uh, there's a discretion in when charges can be laid and not, and it has to be uh, made very clear what those criteria are for consistency. That would help the police. That would help uh, human rights organizations like Maybrith know when to report uh, something and when not to, and that would help citizens uh, remain on the right side of the law, quite frankly. Well, exactly, and there can't be discretion in uh, in, in, in in dealing with, uh, with 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 hate crimes and anti-Semitism. You can't you can't have disc- discretion, as uh, you know, on behalf of the police or the prosecutors. Uh, you can't say, "Well, I'm going to exercise my discretion and say this one doesn't qualify." It can't be that loose. Well. There is discretion that lies and should lie with the Attorney General uh, when it comes to certain hate crimes. But the criteria, uh, the basis for the exercise of that discretion has to be made clear. Mm -hmm. And then it has to be followed consistently uh, to help law enforcement when they're dealing with hateful activity, even online hateful activity. And, And, you know, it all sort of dovetails together uh, because we are also advocating for enhanced training for hate crime officers and for them uh, to know what the criteria are would uh, fit well within such training for them to understand, well, when should we uh, take this matter further? When should charges be laid? And what is anti-Semitism? It all fits together. In other words, their training isn't complete when they have no idea what the guidelines are for the attorney general's discretion for when and when charges should not be laid. Yeah. Michelle, hold on, please. We're going to come back. I just want to read you, before I take the break and talk some more with uh, Michelle Schlesinger from uh, B'nai B'rith. This is um, from Canadian Jewish News. Among the more egregious events reported by B'nai B'rith were a group of teens throwing lit fireworks at Hasidic Jews in uh, Boisbrivon, Quebec, a group of Orthodox students being assaulted on the streets of Toronto, two Saskatchewan elementary school students being harassed and beaten by other students, a student threatening to shoot up a Jewish school in Toronto, and death threats made against children at a Montreal Jewish school that were posted on Le Journal de Montréal's Facebook page. And Le Journal de Montréal is a very significant Montreal news organization. And then, of course, there was the New York Times political cartoon, which shocked many people. We'll come back with more with uh, Michelle Schlesinger and talk about um, the issue of anti-Semitism in this country. Michelle is with the League for Human Rights of uh, B'nai B'rith. Stay with us. Uh, Michelle, I'm going to ask you for the takeaway from the audit in a moment, but I was I, I want to mention this because we mentioned the Journal de Montréal and uh, what was posted there. But then we also had the New York Times just a few months ago, which ran an editorial cartoon on uh, its international edition page. And uh, somebody keeps clicking in my uh, headphone here. Sorry. Um, that uh, there was a, uh, a cartoon which showed President Trump holding onto uh, a leash and uh, uh, li- being led by a dog wearing the Star of David collar with the head of the Israeli prime minister, um, and that it didn't dawn on these people that this was just the worst kind of anti-Semitic um, trope to put on, 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 their, on their online page is absolutely stunning. But there it was. 
Michelle? It's, it's hard to believe. Um, that, that particular cartoon um, was so reminiscent, really, of Der Sturmer, which was a publication um, that was supported by the Nazi Party um, and contained uh, material of that kind. So it, it really was uh, uh, despicable to see uh, such anti-Semitism in, in a newspaper. And, and that's another concern about anti-Semitism going mainstream. Um, that's a huge concern. And in fact, um, many of the examples you gave a moment ago, just before your commercial break, um, are, are really despicable examples of hate that are obviously not in keeping with Canadian values that we hold dear, and really show you, um, show us all, really, um, this progression that we're experiencing from anti-Semitic sentiment, which is bad enough, to harassment, um, to open discrimination, uh, to violence, to vandalism. Um, in other words, uh, what you've seen in the papers and the Journal of uh, Montreal, uh, the Journal de Montréal, and in uh, uh, the New York Times, and so on, these are all things that we can't ignore um, because uh, what starts off as rhetoric and tropes and images and propaganda, it turns into hateful action, Roy. And by then it's too late and lives are lost. And that's why we have to be constantly vigilant as we are at Maybrith um, in combating these things and dealing with them. Michelle, thank you for joining us. A very important uh, message to send and uh, get it out there And because this is an increasingly disturbing reality in this country and beyond our borders. Thank you, Michelle. All the very best to you. Thank you very much, Roy. Bye-bye. Michelle Schlesinger from the League for Human Rights from uh, B'nai B'rith, Canada. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. Thank you.